A day in the life of an empath. Welcome back to Mindwave. It's been a while since you've heard my voice. I've been taking full advantage of all the automation tools at my fingertips. As you should as well. But I wanted to reflect for a moment on what I can only call the dark side of the mirror. This goes to the shadow self. And other similar themes I've spoken about on the show. But I wanted to nail down on something specific that I notice more and more and it might be something you experience too when I use the word empath I don't mean anything supernatural I don't have the X gene. Or fuck it. I don't know, maybe I do. If it exists. But the point I'm trying to get at is that empathy is dangerous. It's apparently a superpower or whatever. Because most people simply can't or won't do it. I'll take a minute to distinguish between empathy and sympathy. Because it's not the same thing. Sympathy is essentially an acknowledgement of someone else's emotional state or situation. The equivalent of a get well soon card. Or the all too common thoughts and prayers. Sympathy is a hallmark card. Empathy, on the other hand, is something entirely different. You don't just see other people's feelings and acknowledge them. You yourself feel them as well. Just as if they were your own. You literally feel other people's joy, their pain, their frustration, their anger, just by being in close proximity. 
You can't help it. You don't choose to feel their feelings. You just do. You become a mirror. You mirror their energy back to them. And while this is almost always helpful, it can become really fucking dangerous. I've never had great control over my emotions. And frankly, I've never felt a desire to control them at all. Emotions are what remind us that we are alive. They are what make us human. Pushing them down, shutting them out, always leads down a dark path. Embracing them, however. Accepting them as they are and letting them pass like clouds in the sky is how I have found my way through this problem of empathy. I'm not religious in any sense, but I found a great deal of wisdom in spirituality and philosophy. And Buddhist traditions generally approach feelings and emotions in this way. Like passing clouds. That has always brought me a sense of peace. Even when the storms are raging and everything feels like it's going to fall apart, I find comfort in knowing that I won't feel this tomorrow. I find myself becoming more and more susceptible to other people's emotional states. When they're happy, I become happy. When they're sad, I do my best to comfort them, but I become sad too. When they're angry, I do my best to de-escalate the I, but I inevitably become fucking angry too. I don't like this. I don't like how much control it has over me. I secretly wish I didn't have empathy at all, because then at least nobody else would have the power to fuck up my day. But I know in my heart that empathy is my superpower and it goes both 
ways. I can make you feel things too. Intentionally. Mostly for good. But sometimes for evil. I admit it. I'm really fucking good at it. It's the defense mechanism I've often referred to as... The wolf. I've... Somewhat... Jokingly referred to myself as... A weaponizable empath in the past. But it's kinda true. The same ability that allows me to feel your feelings allows me to make you feel mine too. There's nothing supernatural about it. It's just one of the things that humans do. And I suspect you can do that too. So remember that with great power comes great responsibility. And do your best to use those powers for good. Do your best not to harm others. But with that caveat, unless they are using that power to do harm to others and need to be battled on the fields of justice. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Welcome back to Mind Wave. Oh, man. I never wanted to be a superhero. I also never wanted to be a villain. I suspect that you didn't either. But we all wanted the superpowers, right? Invisibility, flight, the power to shoot lasers from your eyes, or fire from your hands. These stories exist for a reason. They reflect us, our true nature, what we wish to be, without fully understanding what that means. So, if you also have the superpower of weaponizable empathy, Use it wisely. Follow the light. 
friends of the cosmos. The darkness is nothing but a place for the light to shine. I love you. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the other side. Per aspera ad astra, my friends. Good cycle. I stood my ground and touched one. I touched a dragon. That's hardcore. Hey. Hey. No, save it for your girlfriend. What is it, bud? Is it, is it the other dragons? Uh, how far do you think he's gonna get before he realizes? Hard to say. He seemed pretty committed. No, that doesn't want you. Come listen, my young dragon friend, and I will tell a tale of days when Vikings feared the sound of monsters' distant wail. Where do you suppose we put these ones? Ah, we'll make room. I'm not gonna fight you, Snotlout! You see that? The future chief is a coward! You heard me! Come on, hit me! You know you want to. Fine, but remember, you wanted this. What'd you do that for? Oh, hold on, I gotta take it. If you need a beer to cry on, just lean on my shoulder and you can cry into my bowl. Thick beer. Oh, thank you, Thank you. Eric, son of Eric! Who were those guys? They didn't look like dragon hunters. You know, I don't know. With all the flying axes and tumbling down hills, I forgot to ask. <laughs> you dangs. Uh, Gobber. Hey, kids. I was just talking to a statue of your father as if he were really here. We were excited about making a traditional dragon feast. And then it hit me. Oh! 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 Well, look who it is! Uh, oh, hey, it's really nice to finally Hunter from here to the archipelago is gonna be looking for you. Thank you. It's not loud for your undying support. No, thank you, Hiccup. All I have to do now is make the fire! Uh, thanks, honey. No problem. No, no, I'm not a demon. I'm not a demon. See? 
Just a guy. Just a guy here to rescue these dragons. So we uh, can walk through fire. Dragon scales. Dragons shed a lot. Oh, I know a demon when I see one. No human legs are that skinny. You know, snot loud. He's too big a chicken. <clears throat> Hiccup. El pollo. <laughs> oh yeah. Sorry, chicken. I've been wearing this betrothal necklace all day. Did you even notice? No, never mind. No, of course he didn't. Uh oh, hey. Wow. No, it looks it looks great. Tell me this. Are they giant? Well, yeah. Razor sharp teeth? Uh, Breathe fire? I suppose so. Claws? That'd be yes. What happened to your leg? No. Oh. Ah! Ah! More Really just a nitwit who forgot to fireproof his butt. Dagger says you're buddies now and you're teaching him to ride a dragon? <laughs> oh, that would be fantastic. Uh, like when I met Toothless and... Maybe more big picture, honey? This is going to be just what we need to honor our friendship with dragons and of course, my great friend, Stoic. This is more your area of expertise. Why don't you take it? Can't wait to hear what you guys decide. No, 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 no. Well, I guess you know the tail is fireproof. Now time has passed and what was once our cursed enemy now carries us to battle against our thread across the sea.
Thank you, Annie. Yeah. Here's the thing. I was one of the people Annie was talking about. Horace and I started out incredibly close. We just clicked when it came to producing art. I heard what he did with the most dangerous game, and I knew we were on the same page. I wrote him his first original theme song, and that's what I titled it. You can still hear it on his show sometimes. And the more we worked together, the greater the art we produced, the closer we became. Until finally, I expected things from Horace he just couldn't do. And you know what? That was entirely fair for me to expect. I bought him his goddamn starship. You would call it a MacBook Air, but we called it his starship. All the way to the end, he used that. Even when someone bought him a more powerful computer, he used the fancy one only for videos. He loved his starship almost as much as he loved Volo. And when he failed me, I hated him. I did what I could to hurt him. I call it my wolf. There's a dark and angry part of me that comes out when I feel hurt. I had a lousy childhood, and my adulthood was a little better. Hurt people. Hurt people. And my wolf is a product of all of my pain. And when I unleash it, it can be incredibly hurtful to anyone in its path. That was something Horace tried to help me heal near the end. And here's the thing about Horace. He could have hurt me back. I know that. He knew that. And he wouldn't do it. The thought of revenge was repulsive to him. He just went away. And he went on with his life. We didn't talk for like two years. And damned if he didn't use the starship I gave him to make his art better all the time. And really, his art was all that mattered to him. He did an entire episode about why he didn't do revenge. And, for Horace, everything was about time. Once he got his disability, time became an empty void for him. He loved the absence of alarms. He loved choosing how to spend his minutes, and nothing infuriated him as much as wasting them. Horace preferred the small to the large. Whether we're talking about businesses or artists or choices, the smaller the better. One of his friends was always making enormous dramatic decisions, and then reversing them a few hours later. It was the drama she loved, and Horace wanted no drama anywhere except his writing. He lost patience with her, and it was kind of Annie to let that person into our gathering. I probably wouldn't have. I still have too much of the wolf inside. Annie knew Horace wouldn't like the wolf, so she was in charge. She's kinder than I am. Now, I'm a minister, and I know a lot of folks are looking for a religious message from me right about now. But Horace had no idea of God in the way most of you think of him, or her, or them, or whatever. He wouldn't want me to lead you in the Lord's Prayer or something, so I won't do that. Annie thinks Horace is a ghost now. Horace would have vomited if he heard that. He had no patience for pseudoscience. He was all about evidence and Occam's razors. Think horses before zebras. If he were here, Annie, he would be offering you at least five perfectly natural explanations for what you're experiencing. 
and you know that about him even better than I do. But belief isn't a choice. It's something so deeply buried inside of us that it's almost impossible to change. For those of you who believe in a traditional god, Horus could offer you about a billion arguments against your position, but none of them, no evidence in the universe, will change your beliefs. It's not really a matter of choice. So, I'm not going to leave you with a religious passage. I'll leave you with this instead. It's from Carl Sagan. The cosmos is within us. We are made of star stuff. We are a way for the universe to know itself. Horus was part of that universe trying its best to know you, and to let you get to know him. Remember him as you see fit. He's gone back to the cosmos. And yes, I love you. Consider that again. Again. That here. That's that's home. home. Everyone you love, you know, everyone you love, everyone you love, everyone you and fall out inventor or every teacher moral every every
It has been said that astronomy is a humble character building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human beings than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the painful dot. Welcome to Space Radio, the only radio in space. The spacecraft was a long way from home, beyond the orbit of the outermost planet and high above the ecliptic plane, which is an imaginary flat surface that we can think of as something like a racetrack in which the orbits of the planets are mainly confined. The ship was speeding away from the sun at 40,000 miles per hour. But in early February of 1990, it was overtaken by an urgent message from Earth. Obediently, it turned its cameras back toward the non-distant planets, slewing its scan platform from one spot in the sky to another. It snapped 60 pictures and stored them in digital form 
on its tape recorder. Then slowly, in March, April and May, it radioed the data back to Earth. Each image was composed of 640,000 individual pictures element, aka pixels, like the dot in a newspaper, wire photo, or at pointiest painting. The spacecraft was 3.7 billion miles away from Earth, so far away that it took each pixel five and a half hours traveling at the speed of light to reach us. The pictures might have been returned earlier, but the big radio telescopes in California, Spain, and Australia that received these whispers from the edge of the solar system had responsibilities to other ships that ply the sea of space among them. Magellan, born for Venice, and Galileo on his torturous passage to Jupiter. Voyager 1 was so high above the ecliptic plane because in 1981 it had made a close pass by Titan, the giant moon of Saturn. Its sister ship, Voyager 2, was dispatched on a different trajectory within the ecliptic plane. And so she was able to perform her celebrated exploration of Uranus and Neptune. The two Voyager robots have explored four planets and nearly 60 more. They are triumph of human engineering and one of the glories of the American space program. They will he in the history books when much else about our time forgotten. The Voyagers were guaranteed to work only until the Saturn encounter. I thought it might be a good idea just after Saturn to have them take one last glance homeward. From Saturn, I knew the Earth will appear too small for voyagers to make out any detail. Our planet will be just a point of light, a lonely pixel, hardly distinguishable from the many other points of light Voyager could see, nearby planets and far-off suns, but precise because of the obscurity of her world through reveals. Such a picture might be worth having. Mariners had painstakingly mapped the coastline of the continent. Geographers had translated this finding into charts and globes. Photographs of teeny patches of earth had been obtained first by balloon and aircraft, then by rockets. 
in brief ballistic flight and at last by orbiting spacecraft, giving a perspective like the one you achieve by positioning your eyeball about an inch above a large globe. While almost everyone is taught that the Earth is a sphere with all of us somehow glued to its gravity, the reality of her circumstance did not really begin to sink in until the famous frame, Falling Apollo, photograph of the old Earth, the one taken by Apollo 17 astronaut on the last journey of human to the moon. It had become a kind of an icon of our age. There's Antarctica at what Americans and Europeans so readily regards as the bottom and then all Africa stretches up above it. You can see Ethiopia, Tanzania and Kenya where the earliest human lived. At the top right are Saudi Arabia and what Europeans call the Near East. Just barely peeking out of the top is the Mediterranean Sea, a realm which so much of our globe civilization emerged, you can make out the blue of the ocean, the yellow-red of the Sahara and the Arabian desert, the brown-green of forest and grassland, and yet there is no signs of humans in this picture. Not our reworking of the Earth's surface. Not our machines, not ourselves. We are too small and our statecraft is too feeble to be seen by a spacecraft between the Earth and the Moon. From this vantage point, our obsession with nationalism is nowhere in evidence. The Apollo pictures of the whole Earth convey to multitudes something well known to astronomers. On a scale of worlds, to say nothing of stars or galaxies, humans are inconsequential, a thin film of life on an obscure and solitary lump of rock and metal. It seems to me that another picture of Earth, this one taken from a hundred thousand times farther away, might help in the continuing process of revealing to ourselves our true circumstance and condition. It had been well understood by the scientists and philosophers of classical antiquity that the Earth was a mere point in a vast encompassing cosmos, but no one had ever seen it as such. Here was our first chance, and perhaps also our last for decades to come. Many in NASA Voyager projects were supportive, but 
from the outer solar system, the Earth lies very near the Sun, like a moth and thread around the flame. Do we need to aim the camera so close to the Sun as to risk burning out the spacecraft Viticon system? Would it be the better to delay until all the scientific images from Uranus and Neptune, if the spacecraft lasted that long were taken? And so we waited. And a good thing too, from 1981 at Saturn to 1986 at Uranus to 1989, when both spacecraft had passed the orbits of Neptune and Pluto, at least the time came. But there were a few instrumental calibration that needed to be done first, and we waited a little longer. Although the spacecraft were in the right spot, the instrument was still working beautifully and there were no other pictures to take. A few project personnel opposed it. It wasn't science, they said. Then, we discovered that the technician device and transmit the radio commands to Voyager were in cash-strapped NASA to be let off immediately and transferred to other jobs. If the picture were to be taken, it had to be done right then. At the last minute, actually, in the midst of the Voyager 2 encounter with Neptune, the then NASA administrator, Rear Admiral Richard Trulli, stepped in and made sure that these images were obtained. The space scientist Candy Henson of NASA's Jazz Propulsion Laboratory, GPL, and Caroline Porco of University of Arizona designed the command sequence and calculated the camera exposure times. But for us, it's different. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever lived out their lives. The aggregated of her joy and suffering, thousands of confident religious ideologies and economic doctrines every hunter and foragers, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every moth and fathers, hopeful child inventor and explorer, every teachers of morals, every corrupt politician, Every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there, on a mud of dust suspended in a sunbeam. 
The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all of these generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel, the scarcely distinguishable inhabitant of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstanding, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatred. Or posturing, or imagining self-importance, the delusions that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in a great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yeah. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceit than this distant image of a teeny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. This was read by Emma Digallo. The Carl Sagan Pale Blue Dot, a vision of the human future in space.
you. Heroes! Heroes assemble. David Russell. David Russell. Charlene Russell. Greg Zeno. Greg Zeno. Teresa Zeno. Corey Wilcox. Phil Ord. Christian Swoboda. Fred Eder. David Barnes. John Gleason. Rio Vera Donier. Jesse Rogers. Lena Miller. Christy Patterson. Heather Cook. Jury Melkins. Scott Santon. Extra credits. Best quality shit. We're about to make some fucking magic. Our content is like this for a reason. You're the reason. Hello, I'm Gary, the Starship's Encyclopedia. Would you like to learn more?